You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Well, for about six years, it was one of the major hit shows on the A&E channel. Uh, The show was called Hoarders. Uh, and what it was about was it went into the lives of individuals who uh, just could could not let go of their possessions for, for various reasons, many of them complex, uh, but they just kept collecting things. And eventually it not only ended up destroying many of their lives, but also affecting the lives of family members. Well, in 2023, they're talking about a new kind of hoarding now that some are saying is a major problem for a lot of us, cyber hoarding. Uh, what they mean by cyber hoarding is that there's so much information out there that we're all getting kind of overwhelmed with everything. So in one survey, 50% of U.S. adults do not read over half of the emails that they receive. And about that same number rarely go through and delete emails. And for all of us who have maybe grandchildren, you take lots of pictures we know, we're all getting messages, your data is full, it cannot back up, you know, would you like to purchase more storage space? So I thought, wouldn't it be appropriate as we get into a new year to look at the subject of spiritual decluttering? But what do we maybe need to sort through uh, in our lives, both personally and maybe even as a church, to get at what is of most importance. And not just having a lot of things, but but the things that matter most. Uh, And so I direct you to Matthew chapter 16. And in this passage in scripture, we, we do find a spiritual decluttering. In other words, stripping away everything and down to saying, what is the most important aspects of understanding Christianity and the church. And and we find that here in this portion in Matthew's gospel. So as you make your way to Matthew chapter 16, we'll be focusing on verses 13 through 20. Uh, But maybe to help set the context of this, uh, this passage is also found in Mark and Luke's gospel. Matthew's is the more detailed of the two other accounts. Gives us a little more explanation about the confession of Peter, which is very critical that we'll get to. Uh, The focus in Matthew's gospel is not just on who is Jesus, but how following Jesus changes everyone's life. 
So it's very important, not just who is Jesus, does Matthew want to articulate and present, but knowing who he is, and if you're following Jesus, how does that affect your life? And it should affect each of our lives dramatically. And as you could probably guess, the part in this passage about Peter and the statement that I will build my church on you and I'll give you the keys um, of heaven, uh, that is one of the dividing issues between Roman Catholic teaching and traditionally Protestant and the Eastern Orthodox teaching. And so we'll need to look at, well, what exactly does that passage mean? If we're seeking to spiritually declutter and get at the heart of Christianity and the true place and role of the church. So look at me at verse 13 of Matthew chapter 16. And we'll begin simply with first, where does this take place? It says, the Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus. I don't know, it would help if I was in the right verse. Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, Caesarea Philippi may not mean much to any of us, unless you kind of looked it up a little bit. This is the northernmost part of Israel. So in other words, you have Jesus going to basically the edge of Israel. And you have this encounter take place as to uh, the identity of Jesus. Now, this is somewhat foreshadowing because what will Jesus do? He will come and the message will no longer just stay among the people of Israel. But with his death, resurrection, and ascension, that message now will go out into all the world and into the Gentiles. So the location is very interesting. He goes to the northernmost part. In a sense, you could say the extreme edge of what would be considered Israel. And this discussion comes up. And the other interesting fact is that Caesarea Philippi was not always called Caesarea Philippi. Its original name was Panion, named after the Greek god Pan. So in other words, it was a place that was not known for its biblical teaching or biblical background, it had a mix of religious and spiritual views in it. And that was a part of its history. And so it makes us kind of say, was Jesus here in this discussion with his own disciples? Was he pushing this question saying, this is a critical question when it comes to Christianity? Who is Jesus? Now, that may sound sort of redundant for us. If you've gone to church, you're thinking, well, he's, he's the son of God. He died for my sins. But I think it's very evident in today's world, there is much confusion about who, who is Jesus. And you know this is true because every year at about Christmas season, there's shows on TV that give you all different views on, well, who was this person named Jesus? And then you'll find other shows that talk about other quote-unquote prophets like Nostradamus or others. And it leaves people with this sense that, well, maybe there's no real difference. You know, there's lots of people who get claimed different things. So the, the discussion is strategic because of where it takes place. And I think Jesus is pushing that envelope saying, this is the most important question that not just his disciples need to have clarity on, but, but we need to have clarity on. As Christians, definitely, 
And we need to be able to articulate to that to others who really have no answer, who response to who is Jesus are just things they've heard. And they're not even sure if, if they believe it or not. But let's continue on in verses 13 and 14. Notice the possible answers. So Jesus is asking his own disciples. And, and we want to be clear on this, and I'll show you how modern scholars twist these things. Uh, Jesus asks, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, if we read the scriptures, we understand Jesus knew who he was. But he was looking for, did the disciples grasp at this point in his ministry? Were, were they showing a, an increasing understanding of who Jesus Christ is? Now, the answer from this is clear. They were showing an increasing understanding. It, it wasn't as full as it would be after the Holy Spirit comes. But, but clearly, if you look at what happened in previous chapters in Matthew, they're, they're grasping more and more of this. But the way modern scholars often will twist this verse is they will say, well, Jesus had an identity crisis. He didn't know who he was. And so he kind of looked to his disciples and was like, hey, guys, can you help me out here? I, I really don't know who I am. And it's very important we understand Jesus' question here was not a means of him trying to discover himself. He knew who he was. He knew why he came. He's looking now for, do they understand the answer to the question, who is Jesus? So in verse 14, they reply with some very good responses. And they sort of say, well, you know what? Here's some of the things we know other people are saying. And, and I want you to just think about the responses that they offer that others are saying. Uh, John the Baptist. That John the Baptist was the forerunner of Christ. He was a prophet. Uh, certainly we don't have any miracles recorded of him, but he was baptizing. You know, Jesus came and he talked about the importance of baptism. So you could argue that's a pretty good guess by some people. He's John the Baptist. But then notice it goes on. Well, others say he's Elijah. Well, Elijah was a great prophet of God. Elijah did miracles. Uh, he spoke out against the present ungodliness of, of his day. So in one sense, you could say, that, that's, a, that's a good answer too. Some are saying maybe you're Elijah. Then he jumps and says, oh, mothers say, maybe you're Jeremiah. If you know anything about Jeremiah, Jeremiah is the author of also Lamentations. And, and he writes during a time in which God is judging his people, his own people, because of their disobedience. And they're in the Babylonian captivity. So it's not a, not a happy time. And they're saying, well, you know, Jesus came and he, he announced judgment of God. So maybe he's, he's like Jeremiah. He, he's a prophet. And then sort of the, the full answer, well, if he's not one of those, then he is definitely a prophet. Now, clearly Jesus is not saying those are all good options. You know, he doesn't lay this open and say, well, any of those options are good. Uh, it really doesn't matter as long as they believe that I'm some kind of prophet. Because Peter's response clearly clarifies this is the correct answer. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, 
Um, you'll often hear people say things like this. Well, they don't believe Jesus was God, but he was a moral teacher, a great teacher. C.S. Lewis presents the irony of that. How could he be a moral teacher if he knowingly misled people? You know, if people say he's the son of God and he knew he wasn't, then it would be immoral of him to not correct them. So in other words, C.S. Lewis's argument is Jesus didn't give you an option. Do you want to believe he's just a moral teacher? He said, no, you, you either believe I'm Savior and Lord or you don't believe in me. And so this issue of identity is critical here. But look with me at verse 15 as it, it continues on. He says, but what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Now, it's it very personal. You have the personal pronoun, but verse 15 was probably not directed to just Peter, but, but to all the disciples. He's, he's asking them, but, but who do you say? Which automatically tells us not only in spiritual decluttering, do we need to get at who is Jesus? But, but there's only one correct response. It's, it's not a multiple choice question. And it's not, well, you have your truth and I have my truth about Jesus. No, there's only one definitive answer. And it demands a personal response. And Peter, given maybe his personality, he does speak up. And so notice his confession in verses 16 and 17. Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. Peter's confession shows that increasing acknowledgement of Jesus. One, you are the Christ. You, you are not a Christ. You are not one of many Christs that there will be. You are the Christ. You, you are the anointed one, uh, which would pull out from the Old Testament promise of a Messiah, one who has been set apart to the work that only God could do. And then he says, you're not only the Christ, you are the son of the living God. And that this implies not you are less than God, but you are fully equal to God in nature and in worship. What, what a tremendous confession of faith. And unlike we often hear today, uh, there is no, according to the scriptures, there's no distinction between the historical Jesus and the Jesus in the Bible. And so have you ever heard this expression sometimes where someone says, well, you know, who is the historical Jesus? Verse, who is the, the Jesus in the New Testament? What, what that era is promoting is that there's a historical picture of Jesus from when he was on earth. And then there's the church understanding where they've added stuff and, and made Jesus into something that really he wasn't historically. It's almost like, as, as we know, in American church, in American history, uh, there are people that maybe have been idolized but then we find out other details about historically what they were really like, that, that we idolize them and sometimes maybe even ignore the things that are historically true about them. But when it comes to Jesus Christ, his identity is one and the same. 
whether you're looking at historical evidence or New Testament evidence, they are both confirming he is the Christ. He is the son of the living God. So immediately we are confronted with the identity of Jesus. It's critical to understanding what it means, one, to be a follower of Jesus, what it means then even to share that message with other people. That, that we can agree to disagree on many other aspects. You know, what time your worship service is, what kind of music you use in your worship service, what's your favorite translation of the Bible. We can disagree on those. But not when it comes to who Jesus is. But Matthew then moves further on in this, in verses 18 and following, to strip away everything and says, what about the place of the church? Where, where does the church fit in, in Christianity? And so listen to verse 17 and 18. Uh, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. So we have a very humbling thought Peter didn't figure this out. The only way he knew that Jesus was the Christ is the Holy Spirit working in his heart and upon him. Just like the only reason we can listen to this and say, well, yeah, of course Jesus is the Christ. The Bible is clearly teaches that. History proves that. It's not just you know the information and that's why you believe it. It is really a work of grace and the faith to believe that is a gift from God. But then it goes on in verse 18. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, as important as the church is, it's interesting to note that the word church only appears twice in all of the gospels. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you look for the word church, it only is found twice, both times in Matthew. One of them is Matthew 16 and verse 18, where Jesus says, I will build my church. The other example, if you just flip the page, is in Matthew chapter 18. And in verse 17, Jesus is talking about how we handle offenses and sin within the church. And so you notice in verse 17, what's often called church discipline, like how we seek to restore, bring repentance. It says in verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So Matthew is the one gospel that uses the word church. Now, Paul's letters refer to church, so we have other teaching. Uh, but what does Matthew mean when he sets the tone for church? Well, the word, as you may know already, means called out. Those who have been selected, drawn to God by his saving grace. Interesting that the word is never used in antiquity for a physical structure. So whereas we tend to think of church as a building, a geographical address, where we go, it is never used that way in antiquity or in the New Testament. It always refers to a community of people. People getting together for a specific 
reason. And in this case, it's a spiritual reason to worship and honor Jesus Christ. That's what we mean by the church. So in focusing on that, now the question comes up, what does Jesus mean when he says, you know, I'm going to build my church and I will build it on this comment or Peter, and then I'll also give you the keys of heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven, and the opposite, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What, what does all of that mean? Because it is very evident the church should have a significant role in the life of every Christian. That is not what we're seeing today in trends within church studies and missiology. The, the role of the church seems to be shrinking. In other words, in the understanding of most people, even those who would say that they go to church, they, they typically go less often to church now than they used to for, for various reasons. Uh, and they sort of see church as maybe beneficial, but not necessary. Well, let's take a look at verses 18 and following here, because you have two possible roots. Uh, one is simply, well, is this verse saying Peter is going to be the leader and foundation of the church? You know, so for example, when it says, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Well, does that mean Peter is sort of going to be the leader, the prominent person, uh, and it's going to be built on Peter? A second option is, well, is it saying that the church is built more on Peter's confession that he just made? So in other words, is Jesus saying, well, I'm going to build my church not on you, Peter, but on what you just said, that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. How you answer that would be why you have Roman Catholic teaching, which sees the Pope as one of the successors in lines of Petrian succession, like everything coming from Peter, versus a more Protestant evangelical view, which would be, well, it's built on Peter's confession, not, not on Peter as a person. Well, I'd like to present an interesting maybe perspective. What if it's partially both? And what I mean by that is this. Notice in verse 18, it is very clear that Jesus is using a pun here because he says, I tell you that you are Peter, and you probably have a footnote in your Bible that says Peter's name Cephas means rock. And then Jesus says, and uses a different word, and on this rock, I will build my church. So Cephas does mean rock, but the second word, on this rock, I will build my church, is a word that means more like bedrock or, or mountain, something that's immovable. And so we do quickly see after this, Jesus will tell Peter about the fact that he will deny him three times. So Peter is not immovable in his faith. And yet, by using this pun or wordplay, Jesus is clearly tying something directly back to Peter. 
And so I wonder if what we have happening here is, in a sense, Jesus is saying, once he dies and rises again and ascends, Peter is going to play a role of leadership in the church. And you can't really argue against that when you read the book of Acts. I mean, the first basically 12 chapters are all about the ministry of Peter and his preaching and his leading. But it's not that Peter is the head of the church or that he is the one foundation of the church. Maybe we could say Peter is the first among equals. Because Ephesians 2.20 says the foundation of the church is the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. <coughs> so Jesus Christ <coughs> is the foundation of the church. He is the architect <coughs> of the church. But Peter personally will play a role of leadership in the church. But we mustn't confuse this. Now, notice it goes on to talk about the keys. So verse 19 says, or end of verse 18, talks about the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So we think of the ministry of Jesus when this scene takes place in Caesarea Philippi. It's about one year from the crucifixion. So think of all the opposition that's going to increase. Thank you. Think of all the opposition that's going to happen. But it's probably better to render this the gates of Hades. Hades referring to death. It's not so much talking about there'll be demonic opposition against the church and the church will always defeat demonic opposition, which I think the Bible does definitely teach. Jesus is victorious over all spiritual powers, but, but the thought being here, even death will not stop the church. I think how appropriate that would be in one year, they will witness the death of Jesus Christ. They will witness his crucifixion. Then go a little further out. You're going to come to a point where all of the apostles will be martyred, but death will not stop the triumphant church. And that should be an encouragement to all of us. No, no matter what challenges we face, no matter what challenges the church faces, that Jesus said here, look, even death will not stop this work because he is the Christ, the son of the living God. But now let's turn our attention to this aspect of the keys in verse 19. Uh, Typically in scripture, keys often speaks of authority or power. So the question comes into play here, not what authority or power was given to Peter, but, but what type of authority is given to the church? The church is the body of Christ instituted by Christ. Do, does the church have any kind of authority? Now, this is challenging in a day and an age in a postmodern world where people are taught to question all authority. And you've probably seen that bumper sticker, question authority. Now, we realize there are abuses of authority that happen. And sadly, those abuses even have made their way into the church today. But the church is given authority by God. 
And it would be helpful to understand, well, what is this authority when it says, you know, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This isn't saying that the church decides something, and then that is what God decides. What it's actually saying is the reverse. The church is merely to teach and affirm what God has already revealed. So when we call something sin, it's not that the church has decided this is sin. It's that God in heaven has already called this a sin. The church is declaring and affirming what has already been determined in heaven. And that is the proper authority of the church. So we gather to hear God's word that tells us what, what is sin, what, what is not sinful. How does God want me to live? We don't come to hear a pastor's personal perspective on that. Or we don't come to say, well, this is what the Bible says. Let's take a vote. You know, if majority rules, if you're in favor of it, we go with it. If not, we, we don't go with that. So the church is to exercise authority in all matters of faith and practice. In other words, the church established on Jesus Christ is to preach and teach with authority. But that authority is a limited authority in that it's limited to what is revealed in scriptures. So if I decided this week to make a statement to you that next Sunday everyone needs to be wearing white shirts, if you don't, it's a sin, I'm speaking not on the authority of scripture. That, that's not binding on you. And you should be upset if I ever did anything like that because that's abusing authority. I don't have the authority to speak on things that are not strictly related to what's in the word of God. And so in an age where people are pushing back against all authority, the danger is we're not to reject the authority God has given the church to use when it uses it correctly. Now, you notice we get to verse 20, and you have this, what almost seems sort of out of place after this confession of faith, after clarifying the identity of Jesus, uh, definitively talking about the place of the church. It says, then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. And we must realize verse 20 is particularly tied to this timing in Christ's ministry that it was not wise, it was not the Father's timing that this be publicly broadcasted at this time. Because you get to the end of Matthew, and how does Matthew end? With the Great Commission. That, that we are to go out into all the world and preach and teach. So in other words, we don't want to read verse 20 and say, well, I guess this is a message I, I just kind of keep to myself. I'm glad we have it. But, but no. We, we are to take this message and be very clear and specific on it. Let me look at one last passage with you. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verses 14 and 15. So now we have the writing of Paul to Timothy, transmission of God's truth. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verses 14 and 15. 
Paul says this, although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. And there you have echoing what Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew. What is the church? It is God's household. It is the pillar and foundation of truth. It is not the creator of truth, but it is to take what God has revealed in his word and dispense that and teach that unapologetically. So let's begin this year by doing some spiritual decluttering. And I think the Lord's Supper is a perfect opportunity to start a new year where we are reaffirming again our understanding of who Jesus Christ is, what he has done for us on the cross, symbolized by the bread and the cup. And then once again, renewing, surrendering ourselves again to him and the place that the church is to have in our own life and in our corporate life together. So let's prepare for the Lord's table. We have been studying about the means of grace in the adult class, and one of those means was the Lord's Supper. Uh, remember the challenge there, how do we improve upon taking the Lord's Supper? Uh, and that is one we understand what it is, uh, that it is an affirmation of our faith uh, that has taken place by grace in Christ. We understand what the elements represent and that it is a reminder to us to continually feed and nurture that relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's also a means of humbling us, that if there's things in our life that are not right, um, that, that we should wait to take communion or deal with that even in the moments before the bread and the cup reach you. So let me pray. Our Father in heaven, may you search each of our hearts. Let this not just become a routine done once a month on the first Sunday of each month, but an opportunity for us to worship you, to be clear in our understanding that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and, Lord, that you will build your church. May we each see ourselves as living stones in that church, being built up until the day when you will join us in this celebration, in the presence of the Father and the Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.